This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Politics podcast on the New Books Network. I am your host, Bill Scher. Today we are joined by the author of the new book, How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. Uh, He is recently retired from Swarthmore College, where he was the Eugene M. Lang Visiting Professor for Issues and Social Change. Uh, He founded... Uh, and director for 15 years, Training for Change. He has led over 1,500 social change workshops on five continents. Uh, George Lakey, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Now, uh, on the back cover of the book, it says, you were first arrested at a civil rights demonstration in March of 1963, and your most recent arrest was March 29th, 2018. We're talking in December 2018. Is this up to date? <laughs> yes, it is. I I suppose I'm slipping a yeah, little bit, not yeah. having been arrested since March. Yeah, what have you, what have you, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> uh, but So you've been at this a long time. I've been at this a very long time. <laughs> uh, and, and you... And you and, and you were working before 1960. You've you been doing it since the 50s. Yes, that's right. That's right. The late 50s in the anti-nuclear testing in the atmosphere campaign, which was a successful campaign. We stopped nuclear testing in the atmosphere. Impressive. Uh, so uh, maybe this is, uh, I don't know if this is the best question to start with, but I'm curious. Uh, you're still active. You're still involved in uh, direct action. You're still involved in coalition building. Uh, there is this huge influx of activism from uh, from millennials, from the left. Uh, do you get the sense that, they, that the institutional knowledge that has been gained over your lifetime, has it been successfully passed down to the new generation of activists, or do you find yourself in meetings saying, you, you guys need to l- listen to your elders for Pete's sake? <laughs> I don't think it's been successfully passed down, no. That's why I wrote the book. <laughs> the book is an effort to to crystallize, you know, in as compressed a way as possible, uh, the a lot of the knowledge that we've gained over the years. And particularly, I'm distressed by the lack of transfer of the knowledge of the civil rights movement, because I was intensely involved in that, as, as you mentioned. In fact, I was a trainer for 1964 Mississippi Summer, the Freedom Summer, which almost a thousand 
northern uh, students went to, went to Mississippi to do voter registration and so on, d- despite the fact that Mississippi was controlled by the Ku Klux Klan and the White Citizens Council. Uh, extraordinary amount that we can learn from the civil rights movement that we have not learned. And I was very, very keen to put that between covers of a book. Now, uh, early in the book, uh, you say that uh, you have never seen a one-off protest be successful. Uh, And I find there's a lot of romanticization and nostalgia for protest itself. Uh, But your take is that just having a protest, just having one protest, that doesn't make magic happen. That's right. That's right. It can be useful as a way of expressing ourselves. You know, it's good to have (laughs) self-expression. We learned that in kindergarten. It's good to have self-expression. But as far as actual change, something you can point to and say, ah, we got this done. Uh, that's not what one-off demonstrations provide. And when I think about the, the enormous lot of energy that goes into parades and rallies of one sort or another to, uh, to express ourselves, I think, what about putting that energy into campaigns? Because it's campaigns that actually deliver the goods. It's campaigns that actually change things. You can say it's one way before the campaign, after the campaign, it's actually different. Whether, whether it's with regard to nuclear energy, environmental fights, human rights fights, whatever the struggles are, you can often, at the end of a campaign, you can say, we did this, we got this done. Can you, can you enumerate the components of a successful campaign? Yes. For one thing, you have a demand. You want a specific thing to bring it down to its most fundamental four students walking into a lunch counter in Greensboro, February 1st, 1960, and saying, we are ordering a cup of coffee. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What could be clearer than that, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a demand, you have something you want that up until now you haven't been able to get. And then a second thing you need is a target. That is a decider, someone who can decide in your favor so that the manager of that luncheonette, that lunch counter can say, Oh, all right. We've been segregated all these years, but we'll give these black students coffee today. That is a, 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 a decider in the scene or remotely. Maybe it's a war where it's five and ten and the and the ownership is based in New York and it has to be New York decision to change its segregated practices. But wherever it is, there is a decider. In other words, you're not going out and yelling to the universe, peace now. Because there's not a decider who can give you that. Um, is there uh, is there a challenge for campaign organizers to pick the right target to start with? Uh, I, I get a sense today that people are are highly ambitious. Uh, they feel like uh, they shouldn't be hemmed in by what. Uh, people think is realistic. Uh, but how do you marry that sense of ambition with a right strategic target for a campaign so you actually get a winnable success that um, you can look to and say, here's something to, to build upon? Right. Well, one thing to look for is whether you have the wind at your back or not. For example, the organization that I'm active with now, Earthquaker Action Team, started in a living room with that, that number of people. 
And we decided we would take on the bank in the United States that was most active in financing mountaintop removal coal mining in Appalachia. Okay, some friends of mine called and said, George, now you really have lost it. (laughs) A living room full of people is not going to take on what actually turned out to be the seventh largest bank in the country. But I figured we had a chance to win because we had the wind on our backs. Coal mining itself is in trouble as a fuel source, right? And and we had an ally in the White House, uh, President Obama, who we thought didn't like mountaintop blowing up mountains. Already 500 mountains had been destroyed, so it wasn't a new technology. People already understood. There were peer-reviewed articles that showed that d- cancer rates doubled in the areas where mountains were blown up, that birth defects were up. In other words, we could charge this bank with the, uh, with the killing of people. And furthermore, by, by virtue of its investments, and furthermore, uh, we could also point to the fact in the case of that bank that it was calling itself a green bank. So we had a number of factors. We had factors that were made the bank vulnerable, like it's calling itself a green bank and it's wanting more customers. And we also had the wind at our back with regard to the larger economic picture that coal was not no longer the most desirable fuel source. So that's why I thought a living room full of people could take on a campaign and win. At least there was a good chance. Well, it took a lot of work. It took five years. It took uh, over 125 actions. And yet we were able to force that bank out of the business, a lucrative business from their point of view. We were able to force it out. So that would be an example of choosing a demand that is consequential. I mean, it matters to save people's lives and it matters to, from the climate point of view, to reduce the amount of of, of mountains being blown up and, and coal being used, but the, 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 the wind was on our backs. And, and so that's one of the considerations that I, I think is important in choosing a campaign demand. There is a lot of discussion on the left today about um, uh, proper coalition building, uh, about intersectionality, about allyship, and, uh, you speak a lot in the book about how to build a truly diverse and effective coalition, uh, which is essential to a winning campaign. But I, I think, as you also indicate in the book, there are a lot of obstacles to doing that properly. It's like, it's it's it's, a, it's really easier, so. easier said than done. Uh, so, what would you say are the challenges, and how do you overcome those challenges? Well, it's, it's very often the case that an activist is primarily moved by one thing. I mean, we may care about a dozen things, but there's, there are a lot of folks, for example, who proudly say, I am an environmentalist, and I look neither to right nor left of that. For my work, I mainly work on the environment, whereas somebody else might say, it's unaccountable police killing black people, uh, unarmed black people even, killing them in the streets. That's my number one thing. So there's some tendency, whichever thing that we're motivated by, to get so focused that on the one hand, focus is good for getting things done. On the other hand, not to look around for ways of uniting our primary uh, uh, concern with the concerns of others. And and uh, 
So it really pays to have some folks who have a very big picture and who involve themselves in a variety of campaigns and make themselves available to say, well, have you looked at the folks around the corner? They're working on something that, depending on how you frame your demand, could actually be rolled into your demand and make it more likely that you will win. The current campaign that my group is involved with is an example of that. Uh, you talk about the difference in uh, approach by people who are uh, working class and people who are owning class. Uh, and that can cause some uh, some tension, uh, some sort of talking past each other. Um, and, when, and, when, and when you say working class, I want to be very clear, you are not using working class in the uh, way that we talk about in sort of political consulting, where it becomes sort of a proxy for white working class. Uh, right. I think you're talking. <laughs> That's it. Right. When you when you say working class, you mean anybody who is working, lower income, white, African American, Latino, Asian, what what have Anti-color. you. Anti color. That's right. Uh, mm-hmm. Versus an owning class person, uh, which just comes to into politics from just a different perspective and vantage point. Well, I I had the other the middle. Uh, there, because middle class people, middle class, uh, some some of my sociology friends say, uh, because I'm a sociologist by training, say it's it's more clear to say middle class professional in order to suggest that we're talking about people who are college educated and who are very often brought up to manage others, brought up to manage or to teach others or to design jobs for others, but they're not brought up to do the actual grunt work. That's what working class people are brought up to do. That's my background. I'm blue collar uh, family. Uh, We are usually managed and processed and treated and sorted by middle class uh, professionals who in turn are are controlled by the owning class because that's who hires them to do that work. Uh, So, I get. I got the sense from the book that you feel often uh, people in the owning class uh, tend to lecture more. Is that a fair way to put it? Oh, and so do middle class people because they're brought up to be very fluent, right, with their words, and brought up to uh, to to uh, to oversee the work process and to teach people how to do things. So they they are sometimes even more verbal than the uh, owning class people. Because they're really, really emphasis. Uh, they, they, they even take master's degrees to do that kind of thing, like a master's in business administration. And so that seems to bring in the because you, you, what you hear a lot is, um, and this usually comes up more in terms of uh, race than class or gender than class. Uh, hey, white male, you know, you need to stop talking and listen <laughs> and let other people uh, attain leadership roles. Otherwise, this is not going to be a true coalition. That's right. Uh, so how uh, if it, I mean, is it just as simple as, you know, shut up and listen? Or is there more that needs to be done so people are actually uh, sharing the uh, the ownership of the coalition? Oh, way more needs to be done in order to bring out everybody's positive contribution, because it's not as if. Uh, I mean, there were there used to be sort of vulgar Marxists who would say working class people will do it all. You know, we, we don't even need anybody else. It's not true because the socialization and processing of, of, of people from when they're babies on up does tend to um, 
emphasize gifts that each class brings. So the middle class people, professionals of which I am now, because I, I uh, you know, uh, raised myself into that, um, tend to bring a bigger picture, tend to bring a process orientation, tend to bring, you know, managerial and teaching skills that are useful to a movement. But uh, working class people very often resent that because they get bossed at work. Then they w- join a movement and they get bossed again in the mo- in the work in in the uh, activist context. That's truly annoying. So what's needed? You're right in your question. What's needed is more than just a yelling back. So what I found to be most successful is to create caucuses based on class upbringing. And have working class people get together and say, okay, so what are we bringing to this organization and how can we bring it more effectively and so on? And what are messages that we want to send to our middle class professional folks in our organization and the owning class folks uh, to help them to be more useful in the movement from our point of view? And the same with caucuses of middle uh, and professional people and the same with caucuses of owning class people. What do we bring? Because each group tends to bring something valuable to the movement as long as they understand we are part of a larger thing, not it needs to be my way or the highway. Uh, We're talking with George Lakey, author of How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning, published by uh, Melville Books. I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, I hope. Lakey, right. Okay. Uh, So uh, staying in the vein of the uh, pitfalls of of lecturing, uh, you note in the book that often in um, activist settings that there is a tendency to try to put one form of domination over another. You know, there's, there's, there's one issue, there's one societal problem that's more important than the others, and everything should be filtered through that uh, perspective. Uh, and, and you call that a classic, a classist tick. <laughs> what, what, what do you what do you mean by that? Because the essence of class of 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 the work of the class structure, you could say there's just like you could say there's a racist structure, there's a classist structure uh, in which uh, vertic vertical arrangement is the essence. Uh, the job of middle class and uh, professional people is constantly to or- organize things that are rank ordering. What's best? Next best, next best, next best, and it's a it becomes by the time we graduate high school a kind of compulsion. Who's number one here? Number two, number three, number four, number five. Constantly rank ordering, rank ordering, rank ordering, and uh, it, mass media gets into it. Obviously, what's the number one movie? The number one this, the number one that. It's a, it's all about rank ordering. Well, that's uh, that it obviously has its uses, but the trouble is, it's not simply used as a as uh, for for particular situations, it becomes the way we see the world in a hierarchical way. And that's a big mistake because it assumes that people who say come in on a list of 20, uh, come in 19th or 20th, uh, have no contribution to make. And that's uh, that that is a problem. It comes up right now because there's this jostling among oppressions so that Uh, People of color, for example, will say, that's the number one oppression. Hey, you haven't mentioned racism now for the last hour and a half. That shows you're a confirmed racist. You're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. Because my the form of oppression that hits me the hardest is the form that must be addressed right now because it's number one. 
while a woman might say, and can a woman get in edgewise in this conversation? Because we've gone on for half an hour in a group that's equally men and women, but I notice it's mostly the men who are talking. I think there's sexism going on, and that's number one. And there can be that kind of competitiveness. Well, a problem for middle-class professional people is that because of our obsession with rank ordering, we are, we do tend to be very competitive. I say we now because the more I've gotten into the world of being a professor and so on, the more competitive I've become. Whereas when I was a kid, I, would, I understood teamwork. I understood cooperation. We're not going to get this done unless we do it together. So these, these are issues that come up in the movement that hold us back that make it more difficult, uh, that, that create a lot of the splits in the movement that make it more difficult for us to unite and succeed in achieving our goals. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, one part of your book that uh, some might think is a bit uh, controversial, uh, talking about how you can build uh, multiracial coalitions. You talk about the experience of the United Auto Workers uh, many years ago, uh, and you draw from that lesson in part. I mean, I think I think there's other research to back up what you're what you're saying here. Um, but you said in that in the UAW uh, organizing effort, uh, they did. Th- this is a situation where in the, in the auto worker uh, factory floors there was a lot of racism. There was a lot of segregation. Tremendous <laughs> so racism, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you said they did not focus on attitude, on unlearning prejudice, on the psychology of individual change. They focused on struggling together for a win on justice issues that matter deeply to many people, regardless of race. And then you go on to say, in other words, if the energy now going into white people delving into their psychological depths to ferret out racism and people of color drawing attention to microaggressions were instead focused on focused through campaigns on changing the major policies that sustain institutional racism, it's far more likely that racism will take a major hit. Uh, so at the risk of, you know, two white guys talking about what people of color should do, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, can you just expand on that? Because uh, this is about trying what is the best tactic to uh, to smashing systemic racism? Right. So what is the best way to do that? Right. So, uh, OK, so here's this white guy from a small town in rural Pennsylvania that was all white finding himself in the middle of the civil rights movement, learning, 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 learning from black people constantly. Um, Also discovering that some of my white friends didn't want to learn from black people. And so counting myself lucky that I was at least willing to learn. So we were making victory after victory after victory, really changing this country in some very important ways. Toward the end of the 60s, though, because I had that interest in training, it's a, it's a, just a part of me to be interested in teaching and training, um, I found myself leading workshops for white people 
on racism, on how to, you know, uh, how to create some distance between the racism that we were brought up with and our present behavior and even to change our attitudes. So I did work on that for quite a while. And when the the uh, w- when women stood up for themselves in the second wave of the women's movement in the early 70s, I uh, organized a group called Men Against Patriarchy. And what were we doing? We were working with other men on our sexist attitudes and so on. So I've had a lot of experience with working with the oppressed group, the members of the oppressed group, uh, oppressor group uh, on changing our attitudes. And so it's in, the, in on the basis I, I was I'm a gay man also. And so I worked a lot to agitate my heterosexual friends to work among themselves on their attitudes toward people like me. So. I've I've been through that, and and my conclusion after decades and decades of comparing is that we get we we um, we make more inroads against racism, against sexism, against uh, uh, homophobia, and so on when we change structures that reinforce those oppressions daily in uh, in. Uh, multiple ways. We get more done when we challenge those structures than when we challenge our, the psychological level. Now, that's not to say we can't do both, but what I'm finding useful is in my present group that here we are campaigning to change institutional practices that in such a it, it's an anti-racist campaign and, and uh, an economic justice campaign and a climate justice campaign all rolled into one. It's an intersectional campaign. And because the group that I'm working with these days is a largely white group, we also have workshops for white people internally in which we work on our racism. So I'm not saying that these are polar opposites at all. They can work together. But I am saying that forming campaigns as our primary structure and then changing our, our, our lives and our attitudes within that context is far, far, far more effective than abandoning the effort to change those institutional practices out there and and just working on ourselves. That, I think, falls into a tendency that is widely held among uh, middle uh, and, uh, you know, middle professional people, which is to make an objective social reality all about us. Very easy to get self-absorbed in our individualistic <laughs> culture, right? And make something that's really way, way bigger than us. For example, the massive uh, abuse of people of color within the healthcare system in our country. To make that abuse that affects people's lives and kills people long before their time, to make that all about my attitude, I just really want to challenge that. Um. So speaking of uh, our tendency to make everything about ourselves, uh, one could argue that that is part of uh, why today's America or today's world is increasingly polarized. We can very easily silo ourselves. Um, social media makes it very easier to uh, makes it easy to uh, c- cut out anything that doesn't fit with our preconceived notions and our biases and our narratives. Uh, and in the era of Trump, this polarization uh, is often seen as uh, unhelpful to the advancement of progressivism. Uh, it is driving 
uh, I mean, we're talking about, you know, race and class here, uh, is making it harder to build multiracial, uh, multi-class movements because uh, a guy like a, a Donald Trump or other, other sort of demagogue can use wedge issues to break off white working class folks, play upon uh, racial biases, and deny that coalition building to occur. Uh, you argue that this trend in polarization can actually be helpful to progressives. Why is that? <laughs> it, it, I, the attitude that you first expressed is one that I had for a long time. I just assumed that polarization is against us and keeps us stuck because it keeps us uh, 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 keeps us fragmented. And then I was surprised by doing the research on my previous book, the book just before this one called Viking Economics, which is a book about the Nordic countries. Uh, I was surprised to find that they made their big change from a century ago being kind of wrecks of countries, poverty, enormous economic inequality, and so on, to today's top of the heap in terms of well, well-being and fairness and equality and justice. Um, they made their big leap forward at the times of their greatest polarization in modern history. And I was amazed by that. I'm talking about the 1920s and 30s. I was amazed. Nazis marching on the streets in Oslo, Nazis marching in the streets of Stockholm and Sweden. Um, and at the same time, the extreme left, um, very active, very or very busy organizing. And at that time of extreme polarization in those countries and turbulence and people shouting at each other and all of the rest, um, that was when they made their great leap forward. So I was shocked by that. And then I thought, maybe it's just them. <laughs> it's very, it's, you know, Nordic exceptionalism or something like that. And then I thought, well, what, but what about my country? And I looked at the 1930s, 20s and 30s, Ku Klux Klan, huge rise in Ku Klux Klan. Um, American Nazis growing like mad in the 30s. Uh, and uh, the other extreme, uh, the, the left extreme also, movements growing rapidly. Uh, the most polarized time in the first half of the 20th century and the biggest leap forward that we were able to make as a society toward justice. That's when we got social security, for heaven's sake. That's when we got child labor laws and so on. So I was, I was again, surprised that this could happen. And then I thought, well, keep thinking, George, keep thinking about this polarization. So I looked at the 60s and 70s, which, of course, I'd lived through. And again, tremendous polarization. American Nazi Party growing again. Ku Klux Klan growing again. Uh, on the other extreme, the Symbionese Liberation Front and so on. Tremendous polarization going on. Parents not speaking to children and vice versa. And now uh, we had look at that period. And that was the most productive of change, of positive change. So I'm, uh, I'm forced to come to the conclusion. The polarization, uh, despite its violence that accompanies it, despite the, uh, the, the, the crazy stuff that goes on and the, uh, the, the, the ways in which the extremes um, are, are a real negative influence, despite that, it's the time, it's the opportunity anyway, it's the opportunity for movements to, to, to go forward sufficiently to be able to make a, an actual leap forward. And that's what I want us to do now. I, it's, it's, it's not easy to navigate that 
So we can learn a lot from the Nordics about how to navigate it. We can learn a lot from the 30s. That's why I include that in the book. And also the 60s, we can learn a lot how to navigate it smoothly or as smoothly as possible. I like whitewater rafting. (laughs) So that's the way I think of it. I think of it as a time when the river of social change speeds up and produces a lot of whitewater. And if we're up for it, that's a very exciting time, and it's a time when we can move quickly. But it's not um, its not organic. I mean, you can be in a polarized time and, and not come out on top. It's sort of Think a- of the Germans. <laughs> Think of the Germans. Exactly. Right. At, at the very same time as the Norwegians and Swedes were polarized, also the Germans were, and the Germans went for Hitler. And, and Italy, right? Same period. They went for Mussolini. So it's not that we can sit back. Thanks for raising it. It's not we can sit back and say, oh, good, polarization is going to take care of us. No, 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 no. Polarization opens the opportunity, which could go either way. It can, it could, we could go to fascism in this country. But on the other hand, we can also go to something way, way better than we've ever had in our history, which is why I, at age 81, am so excited to be alive. And some of the young people, I run into the millennials, they say, George, you're so turned on. You're so enthusiastic. You're so what's what's going on with you? You're supposed to be, you know, watching uh, soap operas or something. And I say, are you kidding? This is the biggest opportunity for major change in my lifetime. So, I'm so happy to be part of it. Now you have a you have a, a section in the book where you talk about winning neutrals. Yes. Uh, and so if, if you're in a polarized time, huh? uh, and it's not a certainty that you have the majority share of that polarization. Uh, <laughs> and and it's not like every single human being has picked the side. There are people who are either in the middle because they are high information people and they actually hold um, a heterodox views or perhaps they're lower information people and they are just going about their day-to-day work lives and aren't plugged into politics. Um, what does a left organizer do I mean, is it is it as simple as plant your flag, make your case, uh, be uncompromising, and through the courage of your convictions, the neutrals will come your way? No, <laughs> no, it's not that. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great? <laughs> so, so what do you no, do? No, that's where creativity comes in. That's where we get to be designers. Hey, all engineers, please pay attention. That's where we get to be designers. We get to be designers of the campaigns that we run. We get to design them in such a way as to appeal to that middle. We frame our our demands in ways that sound commonsensical. That is so, so important. Sometimes there gets to be a kind of competitive leftism that wants to uh, up the ante. No, you you demand this, I demand something even more extreme, and that makes me better, or something like that. And that's the wrong attitude. The correct attitude, I believe, for uh, demonstrated in history is to frame our demands in such a way as to be commonsensical so that people in the middle will say, oh, huh, that makes sense. I get experience from this in my family because my brother voted for Donald Trump. And when I'm, you know, for example, uh, we, we love to talk about politics, actually. And we're, we're, we have brotherly relations. And I, when, when I'm back from Norway, you know, I, I say, 
So um, I learned something new about the situation of your grandchildren. He has special needs grandchildren and how it would be treated in Norway is blah, 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 blah. And that's related to their overall healthcare system, which is blah, 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 blah. And he says, huh, sounds like a plan. He voted for Trump. He listens to Rush Limbaugh. He's proudly uh, on the, uh, you know, fairly extreme right. And he thinks that socialized, you know, the socialized Norway, social socialization works in Norway great because it sounds so practical. If I said they're socialists over there, that would be a non-starter. But if I say this is what practically works for them, they, he says it sounds like a plan. We need to be able to communicate with my brother. We need to communicate with not only the people in the middle, but the people inclined to the right. I, 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 I don't understand why the left doesn't unite around Medicare for all, for example. It's a brilliant way of splitting Trump's base. Think of the working class people who voted for Trump who have medical needs in their families that are unaddressed. Think of the rural hospitals that are, as we speak, shutting down in states that went for Trump. Shutting down, right? Talk about human needs that affect family. I mean, this isn't just rhetorical. This isn't just, this is human needs affecting families. We could have an enormous uh, impact by doing a civil rights level campaign that is demanding uh, Medicare for all. Now that would require a civil rights level campaign because we're up against big pharma. We're up against the insurance companies. We're up against the private hospitals, there's a tremendous lot of uh, energy that would be put in by the economic elite to destroy us if we were to go after that in a serious way. Uh, it, it, it cannot be done in Congress. There's no way, absolutely no way to do it that way. But there could be a way of doing it through a level of direct action campaigning that the civil rights movement did. On that scale, we could win. And it would make it would turn this country into opportunity on climate and on many, many other things, because we'd have that size a win that would split the Trump base. Now, I I, I hear when we talk about electoral politics, uh, I hear a lot that the uh, the uh, community of swing voters has diminished in size to such a degree uh, that there's no point even trying to appeal to the middle, to appeal to neutrals. The, the the name of the game has to be to get your base out. And therefore, you don't need to uh, tweak your language uh, to impress uh, other uh, constituencies. Uh, and uh, I, I take it you think there is there is danger in that. Oh, there's huge danger in that. Yeah, the, we, we don't. Uh, some of the people who say that also say there's a civil war in the offing. <laughs> 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 we can't really have it both ways. <laughs> both sides appealing to their bases and, oh, but we're afraid of a civil war. Uh, for, for one thing, as you said, for the, re for the reasons you said, there's always that middle, no matter what. There was a middle in polarized Germany. There was, uh, you know, during, under, Nazi, under Hitler, there was a, a middle. There was a middle in Mussolini. There's always a middle. And so, and that middle is often the tipping point and we need to appeal to the middle. But, I'm saying it's not even a, a, a reluctant necessity. It's such a good thing for us to figure out 
how we can frame a vision, a positive vision for our country that makes sense. And the reason why I put the seven years into writing Viking economics was because there we've got a model that isn't just a conjecture, an imagination. It's something that has outperformed the United States economy for six decades. They've done better than free market system. It continued to do decade after decade after decade. If you want to have a laboratory where you try something out before you try it out on a large scale, that's what they've provided humankind. They invented it. No other society had ever had what economists call the Nordic model. It comes through. It provides more uh, response to climate change, more uh, fairness with regard to race, to immigrants, you name it, they're on the top of the heap. And uh, best place to be in the world to be a mom, best place in the world to be an elder, best place in the world to be a worker, over and over and over, those are the criteria that come through for the Nordic countries. So we don't even have to invent a new uh, a new, a new uh, vision for our country. We can say, guess what? We could go to the people who know how to do it and adapt it to our circumstances. It makes sense, just like the conversation with my brother. And let's do it. And they'll say, ha, huh, sounds like a plan. Why have we been, been uh, you know, living with what we've been living with the last 40 years? Uh, one last question. Uh, I, I can't say I've read a lot of books on this subject. When I was younger, I did read uh, Saul Linsky's Rules for Radicals, which I always thought was a very uh, insightful, well-written and entertaining book. Um, uh, and you were active during his time. Do you, do I knew you, him. I knew uh, him. I, I used to have him come in and speak to my students, actually. So do you uh, do you see your strategy? And Alinsky was sort of known for me. He's been kind of, you know, uh, caricatures on the right as sort of the devil incarnate. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, but I see him more as someone who I mean, he was very confrontational. Yes. Uh, he one of his uh, maxims was, you know, pick your target and freeze it and polarize it. An, right. an individual, a little person, individual person to maximize pressure to make that person's life uncomfortable. So, right. uh, so concessions <laughs> would, would spring forth. Uh, do you think your overarching model and strategy here is, is complementary to what he talked about? Or do you have some sort of, uh, you know, uh, philosophical difference with his approach and your approach? Uh, he has taught us much that we can use and that I've used. Uh, and uh, as my students used to point out to him, he wasn't very strong on the macro level. So he was brilliant at organizing neighborhoods and sometimes in getting neighborhoods coalitions, neighborhoods to be in coalition with others. But when it came to the macro level, he, uh, he, that was just something he didn't go to. Um, and that's, that's what we need to add. We need to use his brilliance on the grassroots level and, supplement that with an issue orientation that creates large movements. He was, I remember, uh, uh, I used to have him in with my students during the civil rights movement days in the 60s. He was pretty contemptuous of the civil rights movement. He said a bunch of preachers talking about how we ought to change the country, but what really matters is organize your neighborhood over, you know, very specific issues, so and so on. Uh, and he didn't, he, Some for some reason, he had um, some difficulty in, in, uh, in, in seeing this larger macro vision dimension 
that Dr. King especially was came to be known for and which needs to inform our work, not only because it lifts us, it, it lifts our aspiration, it inspires us to be willing to risk our lives and we have to be willing to risk our lives in order to get the change that we deserve. Um, and also, and, and that's not the kind of level that uh, Alinsky wanted to go to. Um, and also because power is organized on a national and transnational level. And so we can't get that wonderful city that Alinsky was hoping for because without changing the country. And we can't even get that wonderful country that we Americans have wanted for so long uh, until we also change the uh, international situation as well. So it's just, we need to think macro. That's my disagreement with Alinsky. The book is How We Win, a guide to nonviolent direct action campaigning published by Melville Books. George Lakey, thanks so much for being on New Books and Politics. It was my pleasure. I loved your questions. Thanks. Thanks.